every single word without error. Like I'm going to give you a major premise and then a conclusion that follows from those two premises. Major premise, God is entirely truthful. God is without error. He's inerrant. And he is incapable of error. He's infallible. That's number one. God is entirely true. Second, the Bible is God-breathed. It's inspired. That's what we just looked at. Here's what flows from that. Therefore, the Bible is entirely truthful. It's without error. It's inerrant. And it's incapable of error. It's infallible. So since the Bible is God-breathed, if it had errors, what would that say about God? It would say that God errs. God has errors. If the Bible has errors, then God would be a liar. The Bible is the standard of truthfulness. For Jesus said to God the Father, remember what he says in John 17? Your word is truth. Your word is truth. The Bible is entirely true because God is entirely true. Whenever you speak this way, people have objections and questions. So four qualifications are helpful here. So the Bible's inerrancy does not mean, number one, that it is truthful only with reference to theology. So the, the, the Bible is not a textbook for social sciences and physical science or life science, but it's fully trustworthy about whatever it says, about any subject. If you can't fully trust the Bible when it talks about science and history, which are second matters that we, secondary matters that we can verify, how can you trust it when it talks about God and salvation, which are supremely important matters that we can't verify in the same way? So if you can't trust the Bible, you can't trust God. If you don't trust God, you've exalted yourself as the ultimate authority instead of God. So that's first clarification. Second, the Bible's inerrancy doesn't mean that it's always precise. So remember, the Bible's origin is fully divine and fully human. Though it never affirms what is false, the Bible has the marks of a human book. Humans wrote it with their human personalities and human languages in the context of human cultures. Here, I'll illustrate this for you. I'm going to pull up my weather app. And, all right, it's up on Greenville. Look at this. It tells me, oh, I'm looking for something in particular. Oh, where does it tell me the, the time of the sunrise? It normally tells me. Here it is. Okay, got it. Today, the sunrise is 7.22 a.m. Sunset is 7.46 p.m. Okay, so here's how some people treat the Bible, the way I'm about to treat this app. That's ridiculous. The sun and the earth, that's not how they work. The sun rise, if, if you know your science, you know that the earth goes around the sun. The sun's not rising. We're spinning and moving. We're revolving. It's antiquated to refer to a sunrise and a sunset. I mean, that's junk science right there. So you, you laugh because we all speak phenomenologically as sunrise and sunset, and we know what we mean by it, but we still use that term. That's just normal way of speaking. So for a, for a human who's aware of the science to refer to sunrise and sunset, that's fine. That's, that's just normal human discourse. And we should have that same sort of, of generosity as we look at the Bible on its own terms rather than to write off parts of the Bible as false on the, in the, using that same kind of reasoning I just used with that app. Does that make sense? Okay. Here's another way people could, could do this. Um, someone asks you, how old are you? And you say, I'm I'm 41. And then they go do some research and they say, oh, he lied to me. He's 41 and 117 days and three, uh, I think three minutes and maybe it was 15 seconds at the time, but he told me he was just 41. That was inaccurate. <laughs> really? You want to do this? Uh, or, you know, how far away do you live from this church building? Yeah, five miles. And you go to Google Earth and <laughs> it's 4.76, you liar. Like, that's how people sometimes treat the Bible. They use that kind of standard to say the Bible's false. And I'm just saying, hey, it's not always precise. We should give the Bible's human authors the same freedom we, we routinely give others to use ordinary language. Here's a, a third clarification. The Bible's inerrancy does not mean that copies 
of the original writings or translations of those copies are inerrant. So copies and translations are inerrant only to the extent that they accurately reproduce the original writings. So you, you've heard this, that when God breathed out scriptures, he didn't breathe it out in English, and he breathed it out in, Old, in, in the Old Testament in Hebrew and Aramaic and for the New Testament in Greek. And then a bunch of people have reproduced those, copied those by hand, we call those manuscripts. And then uh, people have collated those manuscripts and uh, compared them and then translated them, and that's where we get our translations today. It's a beautiful process. Um, God breathed out the original writings, though. He didn't breathe out the copies or the translations. And this is an important distinction. It's accurate and necessary because errors in a copy or translation are not God's fault. Those reflect fallible human beings who copied them or translated them. And you're thinking, so what good is it if only the original writings are God-breathed and we don't possess any of the original writings? A lot of good, actually. It overstates the case to make it sound like we don't have the Bible at all, like we don't really know what the original writings say. Here's why. The original, the, the quality of our manuscripts right now and the quality of our translations are so good, far better than any ancient document. And consequently, existing manuscripts faithfully reproduce well over 99% of the Bible's original writings and of that little less than 1% left over, most of that is about trivial matters like how to spell a proper name or, or something like that or, or synonyms or obviously impossible readings. And only about 1% of that 1% is even about the text meaning in some, to some degree. And even for those, none of that affects major doctrines. So it's, it's just overstating it to make it sound like Oh, we don't know what the Bible says. Uh, but this distinction is important, that the copies and translations could have errors, and those are human's faults. Human faults, not, not God's. Fourth, the Bible's inerrancy does not mean that there are no remaining difficulties or apparent discrepancies. That might be a hard one for you to you know, think, well, if it's all God-breathed, then we should all agree on everything, right? That's not happening until Jesus comes back. Um, we can't perfectly interpret the Bible for at least two reasons. One, we are fallen, we're sinful, and our sinfulness affects, permeates our entire being, including our minds. And uh, second, we don't have all the data relevant to understanding the Bible. So archaeology is continually uh, revealing new facts, for example. So we can't demonstrate inerrancy to everyone's complete satisfaction until all the facts are available and perfect interpretation is possible. Until then, the only proper response is to trust that what the all-knowing, all-good God has spoken is completely true. So that's number two. The Bible is entirely true. What is the Bible? The Bible is God-breathed. Number two, it's entirely true. Number three, the Bible is our final authority call this sola scriptura. That's Latin uh, from the Reformation, heard of the five solas that became popular in the 1500s. So sola scriptura, the Bible is our final authority. Jesus himself appeals to the Bible as our final authority and affirms it's entirely true. He says scripture cannot be broken, John 10.35. So God has supreme authority since he created the universe and he controls the universe and if the Bible's God breathe, then it carries the authority of God himself. It's the final authority. And it's not merely the final authority for faith and practice. It's the final authority for everything. And you notice I'm using the term final instead of only. Here's why. The Bible's not the only authority. Uh, for kids, your parents are an authority. Right? The government's an authority. Uh, the pastors can be an authority. Uh, on, on, on. There are all these other authorities. And then, like, maybe some of you are in high school or college and you're taking trigonometry or calculus or some crazy hard class. Um, you're going to need more than the Bible to do well in that class. All right? Uh, so the Bible's not the only authority, but it's the final authority. It's the backstop. You can't appeal to something beyond the Bible as, and, and say, there, that's going to trump the Bible. It's the final authority. It's ultimate. It's supreme. Number four, the Bible is enough. 
it's sufficient. I grew up Mormon, sort of. Have I told you this? Uh, yeah, uh, long story. Uh, probably shouldn't go into it all here, Well, I'll tell you this much. So hundreds of my relatives on my mom's side are faithful practicing Mormons. Uh, my mom is the second of eight kids, um, and all those kids and their kids' kids and the kids' kids' kids, all Mormon. Uh, the only ones who aren't are us. Uh, so the first five or so years of my life, grew up in Mormonism. My mom, uh, long story again, she ended up uh, divorcing my Mormon dad and remarried Charles Nacelli. And he had just become a Christian watching Jerry Falwell preach on TV uh, in the early 80s. And we started attending the Southern Baptist Church, and I grew up hearing the gospel. There's a lot more to the story. Anyway, my point for, for here is... Uh, I've studied Mormonism a fair bit to try to understand what I might have embraced. And I've found that the most fundamental issue that divides Mormons and evangelical Christians is what we believe about the Bible. So this, and this dividing line is not unique to Mormonism. It applies to uh, all other religious people uh, that divides them from evangelicals. And that's because we, we hold some uncommon beliefs about the Bible. Uh, we believe that the Bible is entirely, entirely sufficient for its purpose. In the Bible, God has given us all we need to know to trust him and obey him, to know him. Uh, we saw this already in 2 Timothy 3, that all scripture is God-breathed, but I stopped there. Let me just keep going. All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for what? For teaching? So I'm quoting the NIV here, sorry. For teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's its purpose. The Bible does not directly address every question that people can ask. That's not its purpose. Its primary purpose is to reveal the God of the gospel so that we can know him and honor him. That's its purpose. And the Bible alone is sufficient for that purpose. Its supreme authority is exclusive. That means that no other book is God's word. Not the Apocrypha, which is actually pretty good. I like to read it once a year. That's another issue. It's not, not God breathed. Not the Apocrypha. Not the Book of Mormon. Not the Quran. Giving such books equal status with the Bible marginalizes and demeans the Bible. It marginalizes the Bible by not adequately emphasizing it, and it demeans the Bible because it contradicts the Bible. For example, Roman Catholicism gives the Apocrypha and some church tradition and some pronouncements of the Pope equal or even greater authority than the Bible. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons, uh, they give the Book of Mormon and some other books, the Doctrines and the Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price, and statements by its prophets equal or even greater status than the Bible. Uh, Islam gives the Quran superior status to the Bible. Consequently, they don't act adequately emphasize the Bible. They don't think it's all, all the special revelation that you need to know and trust and obey God. They think you need additional revelation to supplement the Bible or even supplant the Bible. And that additional revelation is not God-breathed like the Bible, and thus it's not inerrant or authoritative like the Bible. And it's not surprising that that additional revelation often contradicts the Bible. So that's number four. The Bible is sufficient. It's enough. Number five, the Bible is understandable. It's clear. So a common saying is that the Bible is like a deep, broad body of water that's shallow enough for a lamb to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. I love that statement. But not everything in the Bible is equally clear. And the Bible acknowledges this. So listen to Peter. This is in 2 Peter 3. He says, there are some things, he's referring to Paul's letters, there are some things in his letters that are hard to understand. You ever felt that way when reading Paul? Yep. Yep, I feel that often. Um, but the Bible's central message about God's saving work throughout history is unmistakably clear and so understandable that a child can grasp it. 
So the basic storyline of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, that is so simple that a young child can grasp it. So God's communication in the Bible as a whole is accessible. I like to illustrate this by taking a, a, a statement from Scripture and asking, can a child understand that? I'll start with the first sentence in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can a child understand that? Absolutely. But is it possible to understand it more? Like as you get older and you mature and you understand more about God's world and his ways, does your understanding of that sentence increase? Yeah, like imagine uh, a professor who wrote his PhD dissertation on that sentence and has been teaching it for 50 years. He probably understands it, probably, maybe not, probably understands it better than a child. But I want to distinguish between knowing something truly and knowing something exhaustively like God knows it. So distinguish, you can know something truly, but that doesn't mean you know it omnisciently, absolutely, exhaustively. We can know truly, and we can know truly to greater and greater degrees. And I think we'll be learning more and more about God and his ways forever. We'll be forever learning in the new heavens and new earth, but we'll never know everything like God knows it. But that doesn't mean we won't know anything. We can know truly without knowing exhaustively. Okay, so the Bible is essential, or the Bible is, excuse me, the Bible is understandable. Number six, the Bible is essential to know God. It's necessary. The Bible is necessary for us to know and trust and obey God. So you must somehow hear the Bible's message, whether you're reading it yourself or someone else is reading it or preaching it or explaining it. Somehow you need to hear scripture to become a Christian. So here's how Paul says it in 2 Timothy 3.15, right before 3.16. He says, The sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through, Christ, through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation. It's through the scripture. Uh, Romans 10, faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of God. We need to hear it. It's necessary to know God. Number seven, and finally, the Bible is powerful. It's effective. So I've actually, I've, I've preached this sermon once before, but I had only six statements, and I just added this one. Made it even longer. Uh, but uh, the reason I add this, I was talking to my friend Jonathan Lehman about, about this, and he's like, you've got to add, add this one. Uh, to, or otherwise, it's incomplete. Uh, the Bible is powerful. It's effective. Here's what I mean. So the universe is everything that is not God. And God created the universe. How did he create it? He just spoke and it came to be. I mean, you try that. <laughs> the best we can do is say, hey, Siri, careful, turn off your, <laughs> or, or, you know, Alexa. But, but that's all rigged. Like, it, yeah, so... God's words are powerful, not just in creating or sustaining the universe, but in softening hardened hearts. Uh, Jeremiah asks this question, is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? If God sovereignly wants to transform a person's heart, he can do it. He can do it, and that's why we pray for God to save sinners. His special grace is invincible. God's word is effective. So that word effective means successful in producing a desired or intended result. And when God speaks, he always successfully accomplishes what he intends to accomplish. Let's read one passage from Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And don't return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is effective. It's powerful. So before we move on to the next question, is, which is how should we respond to this, I'd like to respond to three popular objections to this presentation about what the Bible is. You see, the Bible is 
It's God's word. It's, it's God-breathed, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, necessary, powerful. This is what we believe about the Bible because this is what the Bible says about itself. But when we talk this way about the Bible, these common objections arise from some people. First objection is, you are guilty of bibliolatry. That just means you worship the Bible. You're guilty of worshiping the Bible. Do we worship the Bible? We were just... Wor- We've been worshiping for the last, you know, hour here. Have, at one point, we worship the Bible in our praying, in our singing, in our celebrating the Lord's Supper, in our hearing the Word. Are, are any of us worshiping a book? No. We are worshiping God. But we esteem the Bible as a unique book because God actively communicates through it. To disobey the Bible is to disobey God himself. So we... we well, I'm getting into how should we respond to the Bible. Let's say at this point, no, we don't worship the Bible. Number two, you derive your, uh, your doctrine of the Bible from the Bible. Isn't that circular reasoning? You know what circular reasoning is? It's reasoning in a circle. Did that help? That didn't help. Uh, so the idea is you're saying, I believe the Bible is God-breathed because the Bible says it's God-breathed. Make sense? Okay. What's the response to that objection? Well, yes, we do reason in a circle here, but that doesn't necessarily invalidate the reasoning. Here's why. Our doctrine of the Bible is no more circular than your theories about the biggest questions, like scientific theories about the origin of the, of the universe. Everyone uses circular reasoning to defend ultimate authority for what you believe. So our ultimate standard of truth is God and his word. For most other people, it's something else. Usually what? Someone said science and someone said themselves. I'm going to go with themselves, which some people refer to as science, uh, which can mean whatever you want it to mean, yeah. Uh, So yes, people value themselves as the standard. So the debates about whether the Bible is God-breathed and inerrant, really, that that hinges, that whole debate hinges on one issue. Do you accept what the Bible claims about itself? Do you believe what the Bible says about itself? That's it. And and there are many useful arguments to show that the Bible's claims about itself are reasonable, it's historically reliable, fulfilled prophecies. But ultimately, God's Spirit must convince us that its claims are true, because sin has distorted how we perceive reality. We can't prove that the Bible is God's word by appealing to any authority besides the Bible itself, because such an authority would be superior to God, and there isn't one. Here's a third objection. The word, capital W, Jesus, the word is what matters, not the word lowercase w, not the Bible. That's, that's cute, but as, as pious as that sounds, it takes a different view of the Bible than Jesus himself. Jesus repeatedly quotes the Bible as completely trustworthy and as the final authority. So that's what the Bible is. God breathed, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, necessary, and effective. Now on to the second question. How should we treat the Bible? So that's what it is. How should we treat it? And we should treat the Bible in at least seven ways. I'll move quickly here. Number one, believe the Bible. Believe it. Why? Because it's completely true. To disbelieve the Bible is to disbelieve God himself. If we trust God, then we'll trust whatever he says. Believe it. But don't just believe it. Number two, love the Bible. Why? Because you love God. We don't worship the Bible. Worshiping and loving are different here. We, we worship God who communicates to us in the Bible, so we love God's words. We not only trust whatever God says is true and right, we love his words, all of them, even the ones that are unpopular in our culture. So my mentor, Don Carson, told me the story once. He was counseling this couple, he goes marriage counseling, and they had, uh, at the beginning of the counseling, they did not agree with, I was gonna say with Paul, with, with Dr. Carson's interpretation of Paul on you know, the husband being the head of the wife and the wife submitting to her husband. So they, they thought that, that's, that's not right. 
So they work through the passages like in 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 and on and on and on, work through all that. And finally, at the end of all that, this couple says, okay, we're convinced that's what the Bible teaches, but we, we still don't like it. And Dr. Carson said, good, you're halfway there. <laughs> Meaning, it's wonderful to believe what God says, but it's even better to love it to recognize that God has good reasons for saying what he says and to trust him for revealing what is for our good. Uh, You know, if you have children and you you ask them to obey you in doing something, there's a way to obey that's not obeying, right? It's like, all right, I'm I'm taking out the trash, but I'm still sitting down on the inside. that, That kind of attitude where I'm actually going through the motions of obeying, but my heart's not in it. When I say love the Bible, I'm talking about your heart. Do you actually not just believe it, do you love it? Do you love it? Do you love even what the Bible says about issues that are unpopular in our culture? I can make a long list here. I'm going to make, mention just three. Do you love what the Bible says about Jesus being the exclusive Savior, the way, the truth, and the life? I'm guessing you sing a song here sometimes. I am the way. I am the truth. You sing that one here? Yeah. So do you love that truth? That's really unpopular in our culture. Here's another one. Do you love what the Bible says about how God created humans as either male or female? Do you know what a woman is? (laughs) This isn't complicated, uh, but it can be embarrassing in certain cultural settings today. Do you love God's word? Number three, do you love what the Bible says about how God designed sex for only one man and one woman in marriage? Do you love that truth? Do you love God's words, all of them? Listen to the opening stanza to the book of Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. His delight. He loves the words of the Lord. So what I'm going to do now is just give you some highlights from how one psalmist in in the longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119, talks about God's words. Because when you heard me say, love the Bible, it might have jarred you, like, love the Bible? Well, listen to how the psalmist in Psalm 119 talks about his affections for God's words. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. That's what our affection should be like toward God's words. If that's not the case, then we have a heart problem. We've become satisfied with lesser things that dull our senses to the greatest pleasures. We can be satisfied and distracted with lesser, with lesser things. It, we might even think of the Bible as boring. Do you think of the Bible as boring? Oh, if, that, if that's where you're at, you need heart surgery. Like the, the Bible is endlessly interesting. It's amazing. And it, it's as if we settle for eating weak old donuts and stale Doritos all day long instead of feasting on foods that I like, like grilled chicken and pan-seared salmon and fresh vegetables and sourdough bread. And it's almost lunchtime. Yeah. Uh, why settle for say, scrolling through social media mindlessly 
when you can feast on God's words. Okay, that's number two. Love the Bible. Let's pick it up here. Number three, submit to and obey the Bible. Submit to and obey the Bible. Why? Because the Bible has the authority of God himself. So your attitude about what the Bible says reveals your attitude toward God. If you disregard God's words in the Bible, you are disregarding God. So we don't get to pick and choose which parts of the Bible we follow and which parts we ignore or discard. Imagine this situation. My oldest daughter, Kara, is old enough to babysit the kids, so Jenny and I can go on a date now, which is glorious. Um, So imagine if I said, all right, Kara, I'm taking her on a date. Uh, Put instructions on the fridge. See you in a few hours. And on the fridge, I had written, Kara, thanks for watching the kids. Um, Please serve them this for dinner. Afterwards, please uh, wash the dishes, uh, sweep the floor, and uh, wipe off the counters. Something like that. And she, what would you think of her? Which she would never do this, but what would you think of her if she said, I don't have to obey those words. Those are just words on the page. I have to obey daddy, but I don't have to obey those words. And you would say, actually, you do have to obey those words because those words carry the authority of your daddy. All right? That's the way the Bible works. The Bible carries the authority of God himself. And we have no business saying something like, oh, I I get to pick and choose what what I want to believe and obey. No, no, no. We must submit to and obey all of it, all the words. One of the metaphors that the Bible uses for us is slaves. We are slaves of Christ. And what a glorious privilege it is to be a slave of Christ instead of a slave to sin. So Christ is our benevolent master. And a characteristic of God's people is that we respect to, we, we, excuse me, we submit to, we, we obey, we respect our master. What he says is true and it's for our good, even if we don't fully understand why and how. That's number three, submit to and obey the Bible. Number four, be grateful for the Bible. Why? Because we don't deserve it. It's only because of God's great mercy and kindness that he communicates to us in the Bible. And further, it's unusual in the history of the world for us to have such easy access to so many outstanding translations of God's life-giving words in a language that we understand. I mean, contrast our situation with that of so many other people throughout history, including many people in some parts of the world today. Some people don't even have a translation of the Bible in their native language. Some people don't even have an accurate and understandable translation of the Bible in their native language. I mean, how many good contemporary English translations do we have today? Uh, my, my six favorite are the uh, ESV, NIV, NASB, CSB, NET, Net Bible, and NLT. I regularly use those and many others. What riches? Uh, some people don't even have access to a Bible. It might be too expensive to own. It may be illegal to own. I mean, in the history of the world, most Christians didn't own their own copy of the Bible. I, a few years ago, I tried to count how many I own, and I'm not, I'm not sure I even counted them all because I own them in print and Logos Bible software and PDFs and audio Bibles. And, you know, what. So as best I can tell, I own 115 English Bibles, 58 Greek New Testaments, 22 Hebrew Old Testaments, 29 Greek translations of the Old Testament, five Latin Bibles, 22 modern language Bibles, and 10 audio Bibles in English. That's 260. That's embarrassing. Like, what am I doing with, with these riches? Uh, what are you doing with yours? You, it might surprise you how many Bibles you own if you, if you counted them up. What riches we have. Unparalleled access to the Bible. And how grateful are we? Do you recognize these riches? So John Newton author of Amazing Grace, wrote another poem expressing how the Bible is a priceless book. He says, precious Bible, what a treasure does the word of God afford. All I want for life or pleasure, food and medicine, shield and sword. Let the world account me poor. Having this, I need no more. That's good. Here's number five. Read the Bible humbly. Read the Bible humbly. 
Why? Because the Bible teaches us, it reproves us, it corrects us, it trains us in righteousness. We are finite and sinful, so we need all that. We need the teaching and reproof and correction and training. And the Lord says in Isaiah 66, verse 2, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That should be our posture towards Scripture. Read it humbly. Number six, read the Bible carefully and prayerfully. Why? Because the Bible reveals God and his ways and because there's no other book like the Bible. So in one sense, we should read the Bible like any other book because it consists of different styles of literature that express truth according to what the authors intended to communicate. I spent a lot of my life trying to teach people how to read, just how to read literature and apply that to how to read the Bible. You know, some of it's poetry, some of it's narrative stories, some, some of it's you know, letters, some of it's apocalyptic, you know, Learn those genres, those styles of literature. Learn the rules of them. Just be a good reader. But we shouldn't read the Bible merely like any other book because it's unique. It's God-breathed. So here's how my church's elder affirmation of faith puts it. So we have a, a doctrinal statement for the church members and a really long one for the elders. Here's what the elder affirmation says. The process of discovering the intention of God in the Bible, which is its fullest meaning, is a humble and careful effort to find in the language of Scripture what the human authors intended to communicate. Limited abilities, traditional biases, personal sin, and cultural assumptions often obscure biblical texts. Therefore, the work of the Holy Spirit is essential for rightly understanding, excuse me, for right understanding of the Bible, and prayer for his assistance belongs to a proper effort to understand and apply God's word. There's a B.B. Warfield essay, he's a theologian in the early 1900s, where he asks students, you know, what's, what's more valuable, uh, praying for 10 hours or studying the Bible for 10 hours? And the answer is, studying the Bible for 10 hours on your knees. Why are you divorcing them? It's like saying, which do you like better, your left leg or your right leg? Which is more important, the left wing of the airplane or the right wing? Like, Don't divorce them. Read carefully and prayerfully. And that's worth devoting your life to. There are hundreds of resources to help you do this if you want to go deeper. You have a book stall here you could start with. You have a good study Bible like the NIV, uh, Biblical Theology Study Bible, the ESV Study Bible. Those are my two favorite. Uh, There are a lot of good resources. Ask your pastors if you'd like some more there. Finally, number seven, read the Bible routinely. Routinely. Our high view of the Bible isn't going to matter very much if we don't actually read the Bible. And this issue is a sticking point for some of us. So I'm gonna, I've been kind of building up to this point. I want to press in right here and start by addressing two excuses people like you might give for not reading the Bible. Here's the first one. I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time. Here's how, I respond. Here's how I would respond to that excuse. Are you wisely stewarding the time that God gives you? I mean, we all have the same amount of time. None of us is richer in time than someone else. We all have the same. What are you doing with that time? Now, it's common for literature on productivity to present a four-quadrant time management grid. I'll show it to you on the screen here. So, that first quadrant is important and urgent. So these are immediate and important deadlines. It's important and urgent. So if you're a student, this is your research paper is due in three hours. You know, whoa, hey, that focus, right? Uh, the second quadrant, so top right there, number two, it's important, but it's not urgent. These are long-term strategies, development, your goals. And the next row here, uh, quadrant three, is not important, but it's urgent. So these are time pressure distractions. You know, maybe it's for some reason you leave your, your electronic devices on so the notifications make noises. 
So every text message, every email, every everything, it's like, give me your attention right now, right now. Uh, that's uh, not important, but urgent. Uh, are you feeling convicted? All right, so, uh, and the fourth one is not important and not urgent. And this is what you might do when you're taking a break from doing urgent activities. So if you're typical, you want to spend most of your time in which quadrant? I'm guessing you want to be in the important, but not just important and urgent, it's important and not urgent. So things like, um, I want to memorize the New Testament in Latin. Just kidding, okay, I'm trying to make, make a point. Like big things that you want to do. So maybe your goal is, um, I, want to, I want to read a, a big systematic theology book by Wayne Grudem. Okay, that, that's gonna take a long time. A big goal. That's not gonna just happen in an hour. So big goals, we like to have big goals and reflect on those and, and reach them and feel really good when we reach them. Uh, but for some reason, for our reasons, we often don't reach those goals. We're f- focused on the urgent activities. We f- are so focused on the urgent ones that we can fritter away our time with the leftover energy we have in that fourth quadrant, the not urgent one. So it's like you're focused on these pressured, urgent tasks, and you want to unwind in quadrant four by consuming, say, social media candy, like a, a cat video or a feel-good news story or so-called breaking news. Uh, so that, that quadrant four can be like a magnet that pulls you in and keeps you longer than you want to stay. So here, here's why productivity gurus, when they're talking about this, they'll use an analogy like this. Uh, they'll put a, on a table uh, a glass cylinder and then a bunch of objects that have to go in the cylinder. And it'll have some big rocks and some medium rocks and some little rocks and pebbles and sand. And then the, the only way that all of that can fit in the cylinder is if you start with the big stuff and work your way down to the smaller stuff. So you put the big rocks in, then the next one, next one, and then the last you pour in the sand and it all fits. But if you start with the sand and then put the other stuff in, there's no way it fits. And that illustrates that if... Uh, you want to use your time wisely, you start with the big rocks, the most important things. And I would argue that reading the Bible is one of those big rocks. So you want to prioritize it somehow in your schedule so that you're doing this regularly. It's important, but it's not urgent. Now, you say, why, why, why do you think it's so important? Have you not heard? Uh, you must keep reading the Bible to grow as a Christian. This means you've got to hear it preached. You've got to read it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it, apply it. You need the Bible spiritually like you need food and water physically, more than you need food and water physically. You need it. It is necessary, and that need never goes away. That's why Peter says, like newborn infants, long for this pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. You need these words. You want to say like Job, I've treasured the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. And the Bible's necessary not just for our survival, it's our only infallible guide to navigate life wisely because it reveals God's will. How can a young man keep his way pure? The psalmist asked. And the answer is, by guarding it according to your word. So if you really believe that the Bible's important, it should be a part of your daily routine. It's one of the big rocks. And you might be thinking, I don't know how to do this. Like, my life's a mess. I don't know how to be a good steward of time. This is when pastors preach on on giving generously, for example. Uh, Usually, there are many people in the congregation who are such a mess. They're like, I don't even know how to do this. I'm a mess in my finances. So step one is how to get out of debt and how to manage your finances before you can start giving generously. You got to start somewhere and move somewhere. So if you're at the point where I don't know how to use my time wisely, I'm a mess, I would recommend a way to get out of that. And that's with a, a book by a friend of mine named Tim Challies. It's called Do More Better, A Practical Guide to Productivity. My favorite book on productivity, I'm probably a productivity book reading, that's like my quadrant four. Like, uh, probably shouldn't read so many of those, but I really enjoy them. Okay, but that book is my favorite one. It's good. Do More Better. Here's excuse two. Uh, I don't feel like reading the Bible. 
I don't feel like it. Here's my response to that. Well, we often don't feel like doing stuff we're supposed to do. Uh, Kids don't feel like doing their homework and doing their chores and talking respectfully to their parents. And sometimes adults don't feel like going to work. Uh, Do we justify everything we do based on how we feel at the moment? No. Responsible people do what's right even if they don't feel like it. I mean, I don't always feel like keeping a a disciplined plan uh, for for my life, but I know that if I do, I will be leading my family better and serving others better if I keep it. Uh, Matt knows this story. Pastor Matt knows this story. In 2016, I went to Myanmar, and I got some crazy disease, and it lasted for 18 months, and I had mono and totally depleted energy. I was a mess. And uh, saw a dozen doctors, couldn't figure out what happened. And finally, the Lord used a combination of changing my eating habits and life habits and came out of that. And I've, I've tried to maintain a, a disciplined routine of, of all that since then. And I'm able to serve my family so much better. I, I know when I wake up, I don't always feel like keeping those routines, but it's, it's worth it. And here's where this translates. When you do something routinely, you don't wake up and debate, am I going to do it? So like tomorrow's Monday, my alarm's going to go off and here's what I do. I hit play on my phone, where that's how I listen to the Bible, I'll tell you more, more about that in a minute, and I start the routine, which I won't tell you what the routine is, but it's, it's, I don't wake up and think, am I going to read the Bible today? I don't wake up and think, am I going to do X, Y, Z today? It's Monday. You just, this is what we do. That saves you a lot of time, too, if you're not debating it, uh, and you make it routine. It takes discipline to do what we don't always feel like doing, and that's why it's important to develop these kind of disciplines. Have you heard the term spiritual discipline? That's where this comes from. Spiritual disciplines. Like you're here today. That's, that's a spiritual discipline. I'm, I'm guessing most of you didn't wake up and go through this like 30-minute debate. Am I going to go or not? Go or not? It's like it's Sunday. We meet as a church together. This is valuable. I'm there. Praise the Lord for that. And you'll, you'll benefit from that. So you might be asking, all right, so I think you've convinced me that uh, we, we should be reading the Bible routinely, not just to give me more information in my brain, but to satisfy me with God himself. That's the purpose of it. How do I do this? And I'm, I'm now moving from, uh, from the preacher mode where I say, thus says the Lord, to the preacher mode of, here are some suggestions. So these are, these are fallible, errant subject, su- suggestions, but suggestions nonetheless. Here are four. How, how do you do this? How do you add the Bible into your routine? First, start small. So something is better than nothing. You, know, you might not be able to run a marathon, but can you walk one lap around the track? So it might be that you read the Bible five minutes a day, ten minutes a day, something small, but do it routinely. And I, some people say, uh, I like to feast on the Bible once a week or once a month. And I'd say in answer to that, in response to that, you know, you don't do that with your physical food, do you? Like, I'm going to eat every Sunday afternoon. That's not going to go very well. Your, your, your life's going to be horrible. Uh, you won't eat regularly. So I'd say eat small, um, uh, uh, read at least small amounts regularly, and then you can add feasts in, like read the Gospel of John on a Sunday afternoon along the way. But, but don't take away the daily intake. That's really important. Start small. Number two, choose a feasible plan. A lot of options you can do here. Um, you could follow a reading plan and there's so many to choose from uh, if you google uh, Justin Taylor reading the whole bible in 2016 he's got a bunch of plans you can choose from there's one that my wife's doing called it's biblereading.christkirk.com that's, that's excellent uh, so many plans you can follow uh, you could listen to an audio bible I mentioned that a moment ago you're like is that allowed? Do that, does that count? <laughs> There's no rules for this, okay? Just read the Bible. It can be with your eyes, it can be with your ears. Take it in. I've, I've spent, because I'm a professor, I spend so much of my time studying the Bible um, that I love to just enjoy it by taking it in in broader sweeps of time audibly. Uh, I've been doing this, I don't know how long, five, six, seven years. I love it. So what I, I use an app called Audible. It's connected to Amazon. And I just use a different audio Bible and I'll just listen straight through it and go to the next one. So new narrator, different translations. Some of them are dramatized. Some of, there's, 
I've really, really enjoyed it. I love taking it in. This morning I was in Job for a while. Uh, you could also study a portion of Scripture in depth. So instead of what I just was explaining, you could spend a year in the book of Romans where you, you read it over and over and over and over and over and over, many translations. You might even bring in some study tools to help you. You can go deep in one spot. Uh, there are a lot of options here. My exhortation is just do something. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's a feasible plan. Third uh, is stick with it. Set aside a small block of time every day to read the Bible and don't miss it for 100 straight days. And that'll help it become consistent. On average, it takes 66 days for a behavior to become automatic and you want this to be automatic. Uh, in the Lord's kindness, uh, he helped me develop this routine when I was 14 years old. So young people, you can do this even when you're young. Uh, and so that was a year I've, I read through the Bible completely for the first time when I was age 14. And since then, I've never debated, I'm not, am I going to keep reading the Bible? It's, I just know, it's like eating. You don't wake up and debate, should I eat this, this day? Should I eat this week? I, it's, you do it. You need it. And the Bible's like that. Uh, you want to develop a such routine. And four, you read it with someone else in your church. You could team up with someone else in the church uh, or a group of friends and be accountable as you read and talk about what you read. Uh, that, that's what uh, many in my church are doing. My wife's doing that with some others, and they love it. So to summarize, we made it. To summarize, we've answered two questions. What is the Bible, and how should we treat it? So what is it? It's God-breathed, entirely true. It's our final authority. It's enough. It's understandable. It's essential to know God. I forgot to add in the seventh one there. And number seven, it's efficient. It's powerful. And how should we treat it? We should believe it. Love it, submit to and obey it, be grateful for it, read it humbly, read it carefully and prayerfully, and read it routinely. And with God's help, you can read the Bible routinely. There's no substitute for this over and over, every day. It's what feeds you, it sustains you, grounds you to reality. It's God's words for you. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for revealing yourself to us in the Bible. Would you please increase our trust in you, increase our love for you, increase our obedience to you, increase our gratefulness to you, and please give us grace to read the Bible humbly and carefully and prayerfully and routinely. And please, as we do that, continue to satisfy us with yourself. For Jesus' sake, amen.